Good morning. When I got invited to preach at this event, I thought I was being invited to a Ron Luce gathering, uh, but I found out this is this is fire without the acquire. That is a bad evangelical joke. Some of you probably have no idea who that is, but uh, I actually have known about fire for years. I've never been a member of a church that has been involved in this organization, but I've heard wonderful things about it. It is a great time of fellowship when guys get to really encourage one another and be iron that sharpens iron. So it is a real joy to be here with you this morning. We are going to look at Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 through 11. Isaiah 46 through 11, as you're turning there, I unfortunately will not be able to be around this afternoon. I'm going to be here this whole morning, but I do have a class I have to teach this evening. It is not a class that you can find a pinch hitter for very easily. It's Greek tonight. So uh, that is the only reason I will not be here in the afternoon and evening. Let me ask the Lord to bless our time. Our Father in heaven, please forgive us for prizing the things of this world. They have a certain enticement to our hearts, but they will not satisfy. Only you will satisfy our hearts. So would you help us to have hearts that take in your word this morning? Would you help us to prize Christ above all things? Would you teach us? Would you help us not just to hear this word, but to be doers of this word? We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. The battle of all history is a battle between man seeking to make his name great versus God whose name is great. God has the name above all names. To put it to you a different way, the battle of all history is sinful man not being content with staying in his proper place below God, but instead seeking to attain the place of God. We see this all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 in the Garden of Eden, don't we? There is a tree of knowledge of good and evil. Its fruit must not be eaten. God tells the first man that on the day he eats of it, he shall surely die. But there is a tempter, Satan, who worms his way into the garden and says to the first woman in Genesis 3.5, God knows that when you eat of it... Your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What was the appeal? What was the allure all the way back there in the garden to be like God? And we find out in Genesis 3.6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable to make one wise, she took some and ate it. And she gave some to her husband, who we found it, find out was with her the whole time. He should have stepped up and reminded his wife of what God had said. He did not. He was very passive. And he took the fruit too and ate of it. What was the temptation in the Garden of Eden? Not staying in the confines of man's proper place and instead trying to climb up to the place of God. The temptation was not staying in the domain of a creature, but man trying to exalt himself into the place of the creator. Don't we see this battle going on also in Genesis 
Chapter 11, in the Tower of Babel, there is one common language. So at that time, there was not one person speaking English and one person speaking Spanish and another German. Everybody was speaking the same tongue. Humanity was united. But the problem was, as we read about in Genesis 11:4, humanity united their voices to say, come let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, And listen to this, so that we may make a name for ourselves. There's the battle right there. The glory of man versus the glory of God. Man wants to become God. To give you another example of this, in Daniel chapter 4, we're taken to the Fertile Crescent, the land between the rivers, between the Tigris and Euphrates. We see King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, walking and strutting about on the roof of his palace. And in Daniel 4, 28, we see this man admiring the work of his hands, looking out upon all that he has accomplished. And he says in Daniel chapter 4, verse 30, Is not this the great Babylon? I have built is the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. And to give you one more image of this battle between man making his name great and God's name being great, let me point you to Revelation chapter 17 and 18. We have an image of this city, Babylon the Great, that stands for the greatest of human cities. This is a city with great power. The kings of the earth had streamed to her. This is a city mighty in business. The merchants of the earth had come to her. This is a city with money and riches and beauty and grandeur and glory, so much so that people walk by and say, was there ever a city like this city? But people of God, this is a city who had set herself up against God. There are really two and only two options in this life. You will either seek to make your name great or you will seek to make the name of God great. The two options are humanism, making man the measure of all things, or Christianity, seeing God himself as the measure of all things. Francis Schaeffer was an apologist and a cultural commentator in the 1970s and 1980s, and he talked about the greatest threat to Christianity being religious humanism. Religious humanism. This is what Schaefer said, a quote from him. Two religions, Christianity and humanism, stand over against each other as totalities. And so let me just say it to you again. The battle of all history is a battle between man seeking to make his name great versus God whose name is great. Why am I taking this image of a battle, of a conflict, and tracing it across the scriptures this morning because, in many ways, this is the backdrop to Isaiah 40, especially the text we're looking at this morning, Isaiah 40, 6 through 11. There is a huge contrast in this text between man and God. There's a contrast between the glory that man has and the glory that God has. Look with me at verse 6 of Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah 40, verse 6, tells us, All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. 
And if you're wondering what that flesh is, is this the flesh of humans? Is it the flesh of animals? What are we talking about here? Verse 7 clears that up for us. Surely the people are grass. But then we have this pronouncement, don't we? In verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Humanity in his fallen state especially is compared to grass that withers to a flower that fades. In my mid-twenties, I was doing ministry in Texas at the time. I bought my first home and had my first yard to take care of. And I planted bushes all up and down the driveway and in front of the house. I planted colorful flowers beneath the trees in the front yard, so much so that someone who lived in the neighborhood stopped by one day and said, man, it seems like you have a green thumb. And maybe I did until... The summer months came, and there was a scorching Texas sun that started to beat down on everything I had planted, and everything went haywire. The green plants, and the green grass, and the colorful flowers all burned up. We had a drought, as I remember. One summer, we had watering limits imposed on us by the city I was living in at the time, And what I saw in that season was there can be a slight change in temperature, there can be a change in wind, there can be a change in seasons that has a drastic impact. Suddenly everything was withering and fading. Well, that is the image of Isaiah 40. That is what the beauty of man is like. Make no mistake, man does have beauty. Some human beings have physical beauty. They are physically attractive. Man has made many beautiful things, beautiful buildings, incredible inventions, but all of those things are very, very temporary. If we look at verse 6, very literally, it says all flesh is grass, and we've seen that that means human flesh. In all its, literally the Hebrew word is chesed, glory, all its glory is like the flower of the field. So does man have glory? To some extent he does, but it is only for a very short time. Man's glory is temporal. Man's glory is fleeting. Man's glory is here today and gone tomorrow. But if you look at verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but there is something that stands forever. The Word of God stands forever. And if it's true that the Word of God stands forever, isn't it true that the author of that Word stands forever? There is a massive contrast I hope you see in these verses between the eternal God and limited, finite, temporal man. There is a massive contrast between the immortal God, the one who cannot die, and man who can die. There is a massive contrast between the imperishable God and perishable man. I don't watch a lot of TV. Sometimes I'll flick on the news or a game. But it seems like every TV commercial I see lately is about staying young and getting rid of wrinkles and getting rid of gray and getting one's vigor back and staying healthy and fit even in the later years of one's life. And Isaiah is telling us something very different. He is telling us our days are numbered. The only one who will endure 
is the eternal God. If I had to sum up this passage, I could say it to you this way. This passage is all about the glory and greatness of the eternal God. And what I want to do in our short time together this morning is to look at three roles that this eternal God plays. There are three roles that the eternal God plays. The first role is this. God is the eternal judge. God is the eternal judge. Verse 7 tells us the grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. An even better way to translate verse 7 is this, the grass withers, the flower fades because the breath of the Lord blows on it. That in Hebrew is a causal key, just a fancy way of saying because is what it can mean in certain contexts, and it seems to very much mean that in this context. There are secondary causes. You have heard me talk about them when it comes to plants and grass and things that grow, temperature and wind and seasons. But there is an ultimate cause, too, of why things go to naught, and that ultimate cause is God. Any action of judgment is ultimately the action of God. And that's true not just with the lives of plants, people of God. It's true with human life as well. There are secondary causes why man breathes his last. Sometimes it can be sickness or disease or some accident, or a tragedy. It could be old age or some trauma. But there is an ultimate cause who brings an end to human existence as well, and that cause is God. The truth of God being the eternal judge of all is not something we as Christians even like to talk about very much. I want you to step back and try to think through how Isaiah's original audience would have heard this word. What had just happened a couple of decades before Isaiah is writing this? Isaiah probably writes in around 700 B.C., maybe the late 600s B.C. And what had just happened in 722 B.C.? Assyrian captivity. The Assyrians came and ransacked the northern kingdom, took off a lot of the Israelites. But we read in Isaiah 39, if you go back to the chapter just in front of the one we're looking at in this conference, in Isaiah 39 we find out, That there is judgment coming in future years as well. An even more perilous enemy will be on the horizon, the world power of Babylon, who will come on the scene in about a hundred years or so and destroy the southern kingdom of Judah. And the people of God will soon be carried off to Babylon. There is a coming impending judgment. Do you think the people of God were feeling their mortality? These words came out from the prophet Isaiah's mouth. Well, we too, in contemplating this text, must feel our mortality. Do you remember the last verse of a mighty fortress? Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. But what is our only hope when we are staring our mortality in the face? A mighty fortress goes on and says, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. This is something that will endure. Praise God. 
something that will endure is the very Word of God. And there is someone who will endure, that is Almighty God. That is why Isaiah 48 declares proudly the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the Word of our God stands forever. Man will wither. Man will fall. Man will go to nothing like the grass. But God will stand. There are many human beings in this present life who are experiencing something of glory. Aren't there? They're experiencing something of beauty. They're experiencing something of fame. They're experiencing, as one theologian puts it, their best life now. Not the best theologian, but theologian nonetheless. We could think about coaches, couldn't we? Coach Prime. Everywhere you look nowadays, Coach Prime. Football coach at the University of Colorado is right there. He's experienced something of human glory. Nick Saban is still winning, isn't he? Unfortunately, after all these years at the University of Alabama, he is experiencing human glory. Some people think he is the best coach ever to walk the earth. We could think about Hollywood A-list celebrities. It seems like their bodies are never weak. They are always strong and vigorous. How do they look so young all the time? They're never aging. But Isaiah tells us in this passage, don't be fooled. They too, like grass, will wither. They too, like flowers, will fall. They will stand as we will before a holy God one day. And so, there is only one thing in all of the universe that will not fall, and that is the eternal, enduring, abiding, unshakable, unstoppable Word of God. The eternal God has three roles that He plays. The first role, He is the eternal judge. But secondly, there's a second role that I want you to see in this passage, a role that the eternal God plays God is the eternal king. He's the judge, but he's also the eternal king. Look with me at verse 9. We get this fascinating picture in verse 9 of Mount Zion, which of course is a mountain. And Zion is told to get up on a high mountain. So an interesting picture here of a mountain going up on a mountain, getting a higher view. And Zion is called to be a messenger of the good news, to say to the mountains beneath her, Behold your God. Similarly, in the second half of verse 9, Jerusalem, which is a city, is to go up higher and Jerusalem is told to proclaim to the cities around her as a messenger of good news to declare to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. And what we have in verse 9 and on into verse 10 is a parade image. So think about a parade going by here in Cabot. I don't know if such things happen here. But you can imagine a kid who climbs up into a tree to try to get a better look at what's going on or maybe climbs up on a small hill. He's trying to get a glimpse of a parade that is going by. This is no routine parade that we see in Isaiah chapter 40. There is a king at the center of this parade. A real sovereign king. Verse 10 tells us the Lord God is in this parade. Some English translations say the sovereign 
His arm rules for him. He has a reward. He has a recompense. What we have here is a picture of an ancient military parade. And in those ancient parades, you would have a conquering king who would be at the center of everything, or a conquering general. And a lot of times in those parades, you would have arms and weapons that were used to win the victory on display, people carrying them as they went down the road. But you would also usually have in these ancient military parades a long line of captives who would be seen as the reward of that king who conquered. They would be conquered enemies, conquered foes. But in the image we see here in Isaiah chapter 40, it's very interesting. Those in the long line in this military parade are not conquered foe. They are not unhappy prisoners. It seems that those who should be prisoners have become willing subjects of the king. You see, it's most likely that the reward of the king, the recompense of the king, is his very people. One commentator says this, these words, reward and recompense, refer to the spoils of victory. But in this case, the spoils are the rescued exiles who are, in a sense, God's captives. I want you to remember the background here. Remember that Israel has been told she will go into exile in the coming future. And these verses, verses 9 and 10, tell us The king will go to that place of exile and he will lead the people back to their land. And so in these verses, after we've had that image of God as the eternal judge, we have a glorious image here of a king who is not just any king, but a savior king who leads his people out of exile, out of the place of banishment, into the land they love. That is the king of Isaiah 40, which would have been very good news if the Assyrians had just pounded you. It would have been very good news if you had just been told that a bigger, badder enemy was on the horizon. The promise and image we see here in Isaiah chapter 40 to the people of Israel in Isaiah's day is, there is an eternal king who is strong to save. That is very, very good news. God is the eternal judge. God is the eternal king. But so far in this passage, we've seen images of strength and might, haven't we? Images of judgment and rule. There's an excitement here that the people of God would come back to the promised land. But we also need to stop and think, this king seems like he is unstoppable. It seems like he is able to do whatever he wants to do. This king is utterly sovereign. And I think the question would come up, if we're being honest, this king could crush us. The one who's the judge over all the earth, the one who is mighty in all of his ways, I think pretty soon we would start to wonder, as we would be in the midst of trial, okay, if this king is sovereign, we understand that, we know that, but is he good? Is this king here just to win a victory? Is he here just to, in some way, get a job done and move on? Or does this king have something else in mind? And that is when we get 
the absolutely glorious truth of verse 11. There's something we need to know further about this one who is judge and king. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those who are nursing. Which brings us to the third role that the eternal God plays. God is the eternal shepherd. The people of Israel needed a God who was not only sovereign, but a God who would be tender with them. Can you imagine being kicked out of your homeland, going into a foreign place? You are surrounded by enemies who do not like you at all. They are speaking in foreign tongues you cannot understand. Everything is unfamiliar. There is nothing that is comforting. You have probably been physically oppressed by your enemies. You are bruised and battered. You are probably emotionally broken. You have no idea what lies ahead. The future is a big question mark. You would be shell-shocked, fragile, Invulnerable. And in that place, you would need a leader who is the shepherd of verse 11. People of God, don't you need a leader who is the shepherd of verse 11, who watches over the beleaguered flock, who watches over even the weakest of us, the one who gathers lambs in his arms, who carries them in the midst of the valley of shadow, of death, who holds them close to his chest, who gently leads his lambs. That's who we need, and that's who we have. Christian, this is the kind of leader who leads us. Isaiah's original audience in their recent past had experienced Assyrian captivity coming up in the future They would experience exile to Babylon. But the good news that Isaiah's audience would have heard was this. There is a God who will bring them out of exile into the promised land. And people of the new covenant, I hope you understand Israel is an example to us. Israel is a type for us. The reality of the Bible is that we are in a much worse state of exile than simply being away from a land we love. We are estranged from our God because of sin. We are kicked out of our heavenly homeland because of sin. We are broken, laid low, humbled, and helpless because of sin. Because the fact that we have willingly taken part in the battle that is the battle of man's glory versus God's glory. We have tried to seek to make our names great instead of giving glory to the God whose name is great. But dear believer, you have a judge who is coming again in his second coming The one who, instead of pouring wrath and judgment down upon your head, took wrath and judgment upon his own head. Dear believer, you have a king who, though mighty in all of his ways, though right now he is king over all of the kings of the earth, he did not consider those privileges something to be taken advantage of for himself. But he made himself nothing. The king became a savior. 
And you also have a shepherd, dear people of God, who will lose none of all the Father has given him. He will keep the lambs safely in his flock. That is the best news you will ever hear. But you wonder, how does a mortal man endure? Didn't we read that all men are like grass? If man is so brittle, so finite, how do we endure? If it is true that you, like grass, will falter and fail, you will come to nothing, your days are numbered on this earth, is there anything that will enable you to live on? Praise be to God, there is. Because the word of God stands forever. Earlier in Isaiah 40, we saw that the word of the Lord is powerful in judgment. The Lord can breathe on something and it can come to nothing. But the word of the Lord, dear friend, is even more powerful in salvation. The Apostle Peter, in his letter of 1 Peter, quotes Isaiah 40. This is 1 Peter 1.23. And Peter tells us, talking to Christians, talking to you, believer, for you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. So you, friend, can endure. You who are like grass and a flower, you will endure. If the word of God takes root in your soul, it is a word that will bring you into eternity. Let me take a few moments here to try to apply this passage. I want to specifically try to apply this to men who are pastors or elders in the room today, or if you are aspiring to that. And people of God, everyone here can take this word and apply it to your own lives. I just want to focus our time on that. Isn't it wonderful that God's word can be applied to anyone and everyone? But two pastors and elders, we've talked about three roles of God this morning. God is the judge, he is the king, and he is the shepherd. And I want to focus on the first and the third of those roles. So think about the fact that God is the judge and God is the shepherd. And as you consider those two items, you might ask yourself, how do those roles go together? In some way, don't those roles seem like they are polar opposites? Judge and shepherd. How are those two ideas held together in one being? An even better question, how do you, pastor or elder, reflect those realities in your ministry? Because what I want to propose to you is this, that as a mouthpiece of God, as a herald of the Most High, you must reflect both realities. Put it to you this way. In pastoral ministry, you must reflect grittiness and grace. You must have both toughness and tenderness. You must be both a protector of your flock and a comforter to your flock. And I know this sounds like it is impossible. Let's think about this. What if you have grittiness in ministry, but no grace? You have toughness, but no tenderness. You would be a man who says hard things. You would take on hard issues. You would even do church discipline when needed. You would not shy away from the very difficult tasks that are part of the pastoral ministry. 
You would come across to your people as knowledgeable. You would come across as someone who cares about doing what's right. But sooner or later, your people are going to ask a question. Does this man really love us? And if it is true that love for fellow man flows out of love for God, the people might step back and ask another question. Does this man really love God? Does this man care so deeply about truth because of its effects on our souls, or does he just care about being right? On the flip side, what if you have grace but no grittiness? What if you are showing to your people tenderness but no toughness? Well, your people are going to know that you feel for them. They're going to know that in some sense you care for them. But the question will come up sooner or later in that scenario. The people are going to wonder if there is a strength and a stability and a backbone that undergirds those feelings. This is incredibly hard to do, isn't it? To somehow reflect the balance that we see in Isaiah 40. You must speak hard words of divine heat at times, and you must speak tenderly, almost with a whisper at times to your people. You must afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. As under-shepherds, under the chief shepherd, pastor, elder, you must be both a protector and a comforter to your people. How on earth do you do this? How do you hold these things together, especially if it is true what we read in Isaiah 40, that we are like grass, our days are numbered, we are very limited in every way, one day we will blow away and wither. How do you do this? You must behold your God. That's the only way to do what seems like it is impossible. You must behold your King. You must behold Jesus Christ, the God-man who came in the flesh. You must look to the one who perfectly embodies the sternness and kindness of God. You must look to the one who does not wink at sin and yet laid down his life for sinners. If it is God's goal, which it is, Romans 8, to conform us to the image of his Son, this is who the Son is. He is judge. He is king. He is shepherd. To be a balanced herald of the Most High God, you must look to Jesus and never, ever take your eyes off of Him. If you have truth without love, you will sound to your people like a clanging cymbal. If you have love without truth, you will sound like sappy sentimentality. You have got to have both. And to do this, I would urge you to fix your eyes on an image in the book of Revelation that brings together this balance of a king seated on his throne. He has armies of angels bowing down to him, all people of the earth in submission to him. He is in the place of highest authority, ruling with an iron scepter. He has all might and power and dominion. But if you look deeper, there's something else about this king. This king is also a shepherd. 
He doesn't just have citizens in his kingdom. He has lambs in his flock. And we are told he will tenderly take those lambs to streams of living water. He will hold them in his arms and he will wipe every tear from their eyes. Pastor, how do you embody the one who has commissioned you to his service? Behold the one who is the kingly shepherd. Behold the one who is the warrior lamb. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray especially for the men in this room whom you have called to serve your church. Would you give them what they cannot do in themselves and would you make them something of what we've seen here? Would you help them to have a voice of boldness and courage and conviction and also have a voice of tenderness and gentleness? We are so thankful for Jesus Christ, our Savior. He is our only hope in life and in death. Would you help us to fix our eyes on him, the author and perfecter of our faith? We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.